Well, brothers and sisters, I'm continuing a series in 1 Timothy, and we're now up to chapter 5 and verse 17. So if you could turn that up in your Bibles, I believe it's also going to be on the screen as well. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Well, wasn't Mission Awareness Week fantastic? I hope it encouraged you, maybe it prodded or provoked you to think and pray for the worldwide mission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our world does need to hear that wonderful forgiveness of sins through Jesus, doesn't it? That grace. We need people to proclaim the gospel, don't we? Jesus himself says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And it's urgent. We need to stir our hearts, to train and plant and preach, to partner and establish leaders. So I'm sorry to do this, but this morning I need to bring us all back down to earth. Because what about when things go wrong? What about all those messy situations that that pop up in the churches we plant or the people we send? What about sin? and moral failure? What about discipline? Uh, This isn't a theoretical issue, is it? There can be real damage done to the mission of the gospel. You might call to mind uh, big failures in situations you're aware of. You may have been affected personally by some of these things. You might think of recent failures of key evangelical leaders, those whose lives didn't match up to their public image. You might think of the the US phenomenon of the young, restless and reformed church planters, maybe too young, too restless, maybe not really as reformed as they claim to be. I'm not just raising this because I want to depress you, I'm raising it because these are the very issues our passage in 1 Timothy deals with, with, with and raises for us today. Here, right in the middle of Paul's great mission to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the nations, he talks about processes and discipline. And the issues Paul talks about in this passage are important for us to consider here at college, for any of us in a leadership uh, position, for those with with future leadership positions. In fact, it's important for all believers because we're all responsible in one form or another for appointing leaders uh, and processes for dealing with what happens when things go wrong. Sometimes we can treat these things merely as pragmatic issues. You know, in our minds we can separate them from our theology and our mission as if you know, clear processes for appointment, maybe discipline of leaders, just, just an annoying and distracting compliance issue. Yeah, you've got to do it. 
that's boring. You know, you don't put too much effort in because you want to get in with what matters, the preaching of the gospel. But for Paul here, it's not just pragmatic. Paul has some deeply theological things to say about these matters here. Yes, he brings us down to earth, but he also lifts us to the heights of heaven. The passage has a lot of parallels to the passage we looked at last time, verses 1 to 16. Uh, In in verses 1 to 2, we learn that God's church is, is a family that's both relational and ordered. In verses 3 to 16, Paul talks about honour for older widows in the church. Honour includes financial support. Paul gives practical instructions to ensure the right women are on the list. He grounds it all theologically and he warns what happens if it's not done properly. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Here in verses 17 to 25, he actually does something similar. He talks about honour for older men or or elders in the church family. Honour includes financial support. Paul gives practical instructions to ensure the right people are honoured in this way. He grounds it all theologically and he warns what happens if it's not done properly. So let's look more closely at the passage. Verses 17 to 18, Paul talks about honour and support for elders. Now, you might be aware that there's a debate surrounding exactly who these elders were and exactly what they did. The word for elder here is presbyteros, and it's exactly the same word that Paul's just used to speak of older men in verse 1. It doesn't necessarily mean really old men or elderly men, it's just older men as opposed to younger men. That means Paul at this point in, Timothy, in 1 Timothy could either be giving instructions about people who are already elders or he could be giving instructions about appointing certain older men to be elders. Now, in the short time we have this morning, I've chosen not to go into great detail about deciding precisely which kind of people or position or office Paul had in mind directly because I believe that could distract us from the key principles that Paul gives us, principles that are relevant and applicable to various contexts where people are either in Christian ministry leadership or being considered for roles. What Paul says here goes beyond the specific structures in Ephesus, though it's grounded in the, st- in the structures that are there. Briefly, if you want to know what I think, as I've read this carefully, I think that the situation that Paul's describing here involves appointing as elders men who have a track record of managing their families well. That's because the word rule well in verse 17 is exactly the same Greek words Paul's already used twice back in chapter 3 to talk about men who are managing their own households well, who've demonstrated themselves to be godly, faithful, morally good men in their relationships and so should be in chapter 3 appointed as overseers and deacons. But I admit it's possible Paul's also talking about existing elders. In either case, the, principle gives, the, the principles Paul gives are relevant for us and important for these situations. Because the key thing that Paul cares about revolves around a little word, well. Have they ruled well? Or literally, have they actually managed well? What does Paul mean by that? Because in our, our pragmatic age, saturated with business models and corporate language, we could easily jump to the conclusion that Paul's talking here about whether they've been effective leaders. You know, have they met their KPIs for conversion and earned their bonuses? But no, that's not what's going on here. The church in 1 Timothy isn't like a modern corporation. It's a household. It's a family. So Paul asks if they've managed well. He's not primarily asking merely about competencies. He's deliberately recalling what he said back in chapter 3. It's about good moral character. 
It's about moral goodness, a goodness that is expressed and seen, especially in those close family relationships. And Paul says, he's saying these older men should be considered worthy of double honour. Again, this could mean several things. In this context, I think it makes most sense to to take it that Paul's talking about older men who already have honour through good conduct in family relationships, especially if they've been working hard when it comes to God's word, they should be given that formal honour and role in the church. And just as with widows, the honour will include financial support. So Paul quotes the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching as scripture, which is all very interesting, (laughs) Jesus' teaching here, scripture, to back that up. He's saying, appoint leaders, honour them, pay them. Sounds straightforward, doesn't it? That's it, surely. Paul's told us everything we need to know about church leaders. We've got our structures sorted out, we've got the money sorted out, and we can all go home. But no. Just as we saw with the widow's list, life is messy and people are sinful. So in verses 19 to 20, Paul goes on to talk about dealing with charges against these people. Those uh, present or, or future church leaders, those being considered for the role or maybe in the role, those may be accused of sinful behaviour. And any such charges need to be dealt with properly. So verse 19, Paul says, No charge should be received for consideration without the proper evidence base. Two or three witnesses. That's the technical language, proper evidence. We we see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Jesus. It's the kind of language that's used of a a legal tribunal or a decision-making body. Church families need proper processes for dealing with charges of serious sin. Now, on the one hand, you can't let a cancel culture reign. You can't have a situation where you can just randomly accuse people. That might destroy their reputation and cause more damage. But on the other hand, if there is proper testimony and cause to proceed, the testimony needs to be properly considered. And then, once the testimony is considered appropriately, there may be people who are found to be sinning. People who are found not fit to be church leaders. Think of the types of sin Paul's already listed concerning leaders back in chapter 3. Sexual sin, lack of self-control, drunkenness, violence, bullying, abuse, double-tongued, devious speech, saying one thing, doing another, greed, fighting over words. Persistence in those sins disqualify people for leadership. And those who sin need to be here rebuked, convicted. Again, it's, it's the ongoing language of proper process. Somebody's found to be sinning. It needs not not just a private slap on the wrist, but rightly shared with those affected. Because in cases like this, if the sinful behaviour remains hidden, it might be repeated by by other leaders too. Justice needs to be here, seen to be done. People need to see clearly that serious sins are not allowed for leaders of God's people. And brothers and sisters, this matters. It matters for us because sin matters. And sin is real. If we believe in the doctrine of sin, we'll take it seriously. Not just at a personal level, but at the level of our processes. Now, of course, it's absolutely true. Yes, Jesus' death brings real forgiveness for our sins. There is grace. And it is true that by his grace, the Holy Spirit makes a real difference in our lives and our communities. And it's true that we have to avoid a legalistic approach 
you know, the approach that says rules and compliance is the answer for everything and thinks if we just sort that out, then everything will be sorted out. But at the same time, sin is an ongoing reality for us. And that's why Paul writes here about the need to have and use proper processes to deal with sin, including, including and especially here, sin amongst leaders. Paul here assumes there should be these kinds of rules. You know, sort of, he's talking about sort of inner church tribunals, or sort of legal-like processes to deal with the potential sins of leaders. And that is not just Paul's pragmatic concession. It's deeply theological. We see that in verse 21, where Paul moves his legal and corporate room language into the heavens. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul's saying above and beyond our earthly church-based tribunals and processes, above and beyond any decisions that Timothy or the church might make, there is a greater court. There is a greater tribunal. And that's, that's not a reason just to completely forget about human processes. It actually shows us how seriously we need to take our human processes. Paul's saying to Timothy, as you go about your ministry, as you make decisions, especially about leaders, remember the Supreme Court, the great court of God, the glorious God, his son Jesus Christ, surrounded by angels. If Jesus is Lord over creation, if Jesus is Lord in salvation and judgment, then he's Lord over our churches and our communities and indeed our processes. And that's why Timothy needs to guard these things, to do a proper job. He has a solemn heavenly responsibility to make sure these processes happen. And in particular, he must avoid, again, the legal language, prejudice and partiality, those two intertwined things that can put a spanner in the works so easily. These things we can easily affect us too, can't they, when we come to considering people for ministry or deciding about issues about people currently in ministry. We can easily be partial to people without properly thinking through the testimony of the two or three or whatever witnesses. It's so easy to make up our minds quickly on the basis of impressions, negative or positive, to make decisions just about someone's background or where they went to school or church or whatever it is. We can easily say, oh, he's a good bloke. I've known him for years. He's one of us. Never do anything like that. If we're not careful, properly careful, we can end up excusing or covering up wrongdoing. And brothers and sisters, this must not happen. Because the church is not a club. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And this isn't just serious for the church. It's actually quite personal for Timothy himself. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. These aren't two separate commands. Uh, Paul's saying if you're hasty in the laying on of hands, if you're too quick to appoint and commission leaders without due regard to proper process, then if someone you appoint turns out to be sinning in significant ways, then Timothy, well, you've got to share in that sin. It's on you too. Because it's such a temptation to skip the proper steps, isn't it? Especially when we've got things happening and we've got our structures set up. We need leaders to fill our ministry activities. So it's really easy to look at the showy people, to look at the, the clearly gifted people. It's so easy to say, yeah, they're fit for ministry. They're great people. They're go-getters. They're popular people. Follow them and we can forget to ask the questions that really matter. What about their lives? 
their relationships, character, how they use their words personally, their use of alcohol and money and sex and the kind of things Paul talks about in chapter 3. If you don't ask those things with, with proper consideration, it turns out if you've taken a shortcut, then it's on you too. Paul tells Timothy, you must keep yourself pure from that. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of God's people, the church of the living God. Timothy's purity affects everyone. And by the way, I think that context of true purity helps explain the strange comment about drinking wine in verse 23, but I don't have time to talk about it here in chapel, so we'll have to talk about it later. The key point is, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands and don't share in the sins of others. So after all, these serious sins aren't always obvious straight away. Verse 24, that's the point. Yes, it's true. The sins of some people are immediately obvious, letting them right into judgment straight away. But So yes, we'll be able to spot some people who aren't fit to be leaders a mile off. Their sins are clear. But that's not true for everyone. The sins of some people take a while to come out because it has to do with their relationships, their track record. That's an important reason why Timothy shouldn't be hasty in laying hands on people. He'll need to wait for some sins to come to light. So sorry to bring you down to earth this morning, but it matters, doesn't it? We need to take this very seriously as we consider leaders, appoint leaders. We need good, proper processes. And in my own ministry, uh, in, in, in the past, I've had to put these things into practice, and it's painful. And it's really hard for relationships, deeply painful for relationships. And in it all, it's really easy just to operate with the fear of man, to care more about damage to my own reputation or relationships or whatever it is than the fear of God. But what we need here is the fear of God. The true tribunal is in heaven. God knows, he sees. And we need to be aware of the deceptiveness of sin. And that's why I'm so glad that Paul wrote verse 25. He's returning here to his earlier point in verse 17 about those who've done a good job. There are indeed good men who do good works. Those who relate well. Those who love their families properly. Those who should be honoured. Those who will lead God's family rightly. And if we're careful about discerning sin... Well, it's not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. It won't just help avoid the wrong people in leadership, but it'll also make sure that we've got the right people in place. Good works, you see, aren't always obvious either. Yes, you can sometimes see good works straight away, but there are hidden good works too, aren't there? Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6? Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus talks about your giving and your good works and your prayers being hidden, being secret, done for an audience of one. So, Timothy, consider an older man whose good works are quiet and hidden, seen by God, but not being done for show to others. This is the kind of man we want to lead God's people, isn't it? How will you know who these, these men are? By not being hasty in the laying on of hands. As you take good care, it will come to light. Jesus also says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So maybe right now you're looking for leaders. For leaders in church, maybe for youth ministry, whatever it is, and thinking about the future. We need to be careful. You need to watch people. 
not rely on fleeting impressions, not looking at the obvious gifts, the, the achievements or humble brags on social media or whatever it is. Watch, ask, see how they relate with their families and friends. Look for the good works, especially the ones they're not talking about <laughs> themselves. In my own experience, some of the most effective ministry I've seen has been done by people you probably couldn't name. People very few people know about. Not, not the supernova, you know, who for a, a moment shines brighter than a million suns and then explodes over everything and collapses into a black hole. No, the lamp. The lamp who gives a steady light for a lifetime. The people who've managed well. Pillars and buttresses of the truth, people God has used to build his church over the ages, whose faith, like a mustard seed, has multiplied to others, 30, 60, 100-fold. That's effective. Whom God has used to see his gospel go out to families, to neighbours, to the world, which is, of course, one big reason why we do what we do here at college. All the expensive stuff, all the hard stuff we do, the living in community, the inefficiency all the lunches and the chapels and the chaplaincy groups and the relationships and all that stuff of living in community, that's vital for the work of training and growing and discerning leaders and ministers of the gospel, isn't it? Why? Because like Paul, we want to be serious about seeing that saving gospel go out to the nations. Shall we pray? Father, we praise you for who you are. Help us to fear you to know you, work through us. Help us to be serious and to trust in your goodness. And we pray that through us and through the decisions we make, you may graciously see that saving gospel of Jesus go out to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.